Welcome back to Halford and Bruff here. Sportsnet 650, Jamie Dodd and Israel Fair filling in. A happy Big Band Tuesday to everybody here on the show. Keep your texts coming in. Great discussion on the Canucks last segment, 650-650. We'll get back into it throughout the course of the show. Halford and Bruff is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Build your company to win with Kubota from Avenue Machinery. Uh, and also the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer. Uh, very uh, pleased to be joined by our next guest, Carolyn Cameron of Sportsnet. And it was a, a long list of celebrities at Flushing Meadows to see Serena Williams. It was Bill Clinton, Spike Lee, Bella Hadid, and Carolyn Cameron. So you're you're in some very illustrious company there, Carolyn. Yeah, you got one of those wrong. <laughs> I mean, I got to ask, did you have a a celebrity sighting or, or interaction? Because it was a very star-studded crowd uh, at the event I last night. See, yeah, I could see Bill Clinton from very afar, but I caught his hair. And Anna Wintour, when we were walking out, me and Alex and the camera guy, we were walking out right behind Anna Wintour, which I found very exciting. He didn't seem as interested, but <laughs> that's pretty that good. Pretty close. That's not bad. And then so- someone from The Bachelor. But that well, wasn't very exciting. Yeah, that one's not doing it as much for me. Somebody no, from the Bachelor. Doing it for me. Um, but just, I mean, beyond obviously the celebrities and the star power, just kind of take us through the whole scene and the spectacle. I mean, from the entrance to the outfit she was wearing, all of it, it, it seemed to be, I mean, certainly on TV, it was remarkable. What was it like to be there in person? It was pretty spectacular. Even when we arrived in the afternoon, just on the ground, the, the Amanda Media, and I even asked, and they said, it was more media than they've ever had for any final, any time, which is pretty incredible for an opening round match. And then I've, I was fortunate enough to be here in the stands covering it when Bianca won in 2019. And keep in mind, that was over Serena Williams, who was looking to win her record 24th slam at home. And that was loud, but last night was even louder. The, the just bizarre part of it was, it was such an emotional build-up, even with her coming out on court and the start of the match, and you just really felt like, wow, we're all here for a last match, and this is it. And then she wins, and the crowd was loving it, but then it was kind of the awkward, okay, well, we'll say goodbye now, and then whenever you do lose, if you do lose, then I guess you can just quietly, <laughs> or more <laughs> quietly, go off into the sunset. So I'll just be interested, because it was so big and celebratory last night i'm curious to see what the scene's going to be like tomorrow because it's kind of like a second goodbye party serena's been at the center of tennis for i mean pretty much her entire career we're talking 20 years where she has been the focus the center of attention and and her success speaks to that but this is uh, as you said uh, we're, we're reaching the end here she's obviously made that public how, how do you think she took last night and, and what this run might mean to her uh, for someone who's used to being the focus, but this is obviously in a, in a quite a different way than, than she's used to. Yeah. And as she said, even in the Vogue article that she penned to announce her retirement is she's awful at goodbye. She doesn't like them. She doesn't like the word retirement. And it's even kind of been a taboo topic, even between she and her husband but she knows it's time to move on. And I think there was a great sense of that last night. Last night was more, how would I put this? She seemed more accepting of the decision than she did back in Toronto when it was so fresh and she had just released that article and and spoke with Carly Agro for the first time in terms of speaking to the media since that announcement. Last night she seemed more at peace and as if she was enjoying it 
more. Um, it was emotional, but not maybe as heart wrenching. Now, granted, she also won, so I think mm. that helped her too. Because we can't forget, even though this is a goodbye, she still wants to win. It's her decision to retire after the U.S. Open. She could have just released that Vogue article and said, "I'm done now." But no, she still wants to play and she still wants to win. Uh, as she said in the Vogue article, it's just that she wants to have another child more than her desire to to be a tennis player and and, and prepare her body for that. Um, so I think I think she really enjoyed it. And even post match in the press conference, she was saying that she could feel the crowd in her chest when she walked out. It was just so loud, and she really did appreciate it. So I think she's someone who earlier in her career said that when she retired, no one would know. She would just quietly announce her retirement. So I think it was unlike her to release that Vogue article and tell everyone that she was going to, but I'm really glad she did because it gave the opportunity for both she and the public to say goodbye last night and celebrate her, and that's what will continue to happen as long as she's standing in this tournament. Well, and I think it's fitting, Caroline, that she is doing it in this way because, you know, Serena, as incredibly accomplished as she is on the tennis court, that's not the only reason that she's been such a star, right? People are also drawn to her personality and that kind of aura that she has, and I think that was on display. It's fitting that people are getting chance to appreciate that in addition to her game. And I thought that element of things was on full display uh, last night and probably will be for the rest of the tournament there. Yeah, the New York Times had a really good article yesterday, and it was just simply the question, what does Serena Williams mean to you? And they were just interviewing different people around the Grands and around New York, and everyone had a different answer. Because some were based on tennis and wanting to get people into tennis, remembering some of her most remarkable wins. Um, some were more technical about her actual game and how she and Venus changed the game and made it more of a power game. And everyone that's followed has had to try and keep up and better that. And that's been the challenge. So many were even about one family was talking about how Serena made it okay and cooler for them to wear braids. Like it's the, it's just, it's the social impact that she's had. It's the impact that she's had on African-Americans, on black women, on mothers, on um, social inequities, on health inequities, because she's also been very vocal in terms of her health and the struggles that she's had and the pulmonary embolism she had after giving birth to her daughter Olympia nearly five years ago and how that is more likely for black women. So, I mean, she's just... She's touched so many people so far beyond tennis and even so far beyond sport. So I think that's why it was just such a huge night last night and there were so many media because it's, it's really not about the tennis this week at all. It's, it's just about celebrating Serena and what she's meant to the world, really, which is pretty incredible even just to say it. There's just so few people like her. Of course, the the tennis is going to be part of it. Uh, I'm I'm sure that if she had her her choice, uh, it would probably be still the focus. And and we know that she can still play at a high level. What what did you make of her opening round match? What kind of chances do you think that she has to to go on a, on a bit of a longer run here? Yeah, I didn't have high expectations um, for her, just given the fact that she'd taken a year off and she played Wimbledon, lost in the first round gave herself a little bit more time to train ahead of Toronto and she won one match and then lost in the second round in straight sets. And then Cincinnati, she lost in the first round to Emma Raducanu and it was six love in the second. 
I thought last night she was moving a lot better than she was in Cincinnati and earlier this summer. I think she really played her way into the match. She was the better player, obviously, and she wins in straight sets. I wouldn't say she's at the level to win a slam or maybe even necessarily get into the second week. But that being said, as Serena said, the essence of being Serena is bringing her best and proving people wrong. And if there is ever a time to prove people wrong, it's probably going to be her final tournament. So up next, she's got Annette Contivet, who's the world number two. So that's a bigger challenge in and of itself as opposed to playing the number 80th ranked player as she did last night. But that being said, Contivet hasn't been playing great tennis, even as the world number two. And it begs the question, okay, on center court, once again, on Arthur Ashe Stadium, Who's the moment going to be greater for? Who's it going to get the best of? Is it going to be Contivit or is it going to be Serena? Because, it's again, it's not just about the tennis. It's about everything else surrounding it. Well, and then the draws, the draws really open after that if Serena were to upset Contivit. But that, that is going to be your biggest test. Well, and sorry to interrupt there, Carolyn, but just as your That's point, okay. to your point, I mean... If there's ever a, a moment where we, we could see, does the crowd kind of definitively make a difference in sports? This is going to be it, right? Because we know what the scene is going to be. We know where the support is going to be. And that could be the kind of thing that uh, that lifts Serena to like one final storybook run here at the U.S. Open. In conversation with uh, Carolyn Cameron from Sportsnet, talking tennis and the U.S. Open. And I wanted to switch uh, switch gears just a little bit and talk about the Canadians at this tournament, Caroline. Really good day for the Canadians, all winning their single match in the main draw. What stood out to you the most uh, from the results for the Canadians yesterday? Yeah, so a couple. I was really happy to see Bianca win, and she won in three sets in a really kind of funky scoreline because she won the first set six love, which is kind of a dangerous way to win a set, which I know sounds silly, but you can't. If you win six love, you're not really, you don't have a feel for the match. You haven't really been tested. You're not really in it. And then she dropped the second, six three, and then she bounced back and won the third, six one. So I thought that was a good response. Uh, in the press conference afterwards, she seemed really comfortable, positive. Her back um, wasn't bothering her at all, which was bothering her a little bit in Toronto. And that's why she then said she uh, skipped Cincinnati just to prep for the U.S. Open. Was really happy for Vancouver's own Rebecca Marino getting her first main draw win at the U.S. Open since 2010 and a straight sets win. She's just had such a great year, and right now she's just outside the top 100, but earlier this season she broke into the top 100, and this result in New York will, will certainly help her. And um, Layla with an easy straight sets win, and then Felix a little bit trickier, but still a, a pretty neat and tidy four-set win for him. And he's the one in terms of all the Canadians but then a Shapovalov still to play today. Felix is the one who I think could go the deepest in New York, just based on his progression over the past year. And even just in his career, he's made four quarterfinals at Masters events. He's gotten the top 10 wins. So he's kind of, he has this steady climb. It hasn't been a fast rise. It's just been really steady. So I think New York could be a time for him to break through even further. I'm glad you brought up Felix because he is a really fascinating test case because, as you said, it's been this kind of consistency, this steadiness. Uh, he, he looks the part. It's, it sure seems like he's the kind of player that seems primed to, to break out. If he has a great run at this U.S. Open, how will people look back at, at this last year that, that he's had and the way that he's played? 
it's just been it's so hard to find consistency on tour i think especially in an individual sport with such a long season it's it's that elusive thing that every player looks for and for him it's just always trying to get better one week after the other and you've seen guys in his generation even a bit older like Medvedev, Rude, just guys really break through pretty quickly. Titi Pass, and he's had his moments, but it just has it. He's had to be patient. Um, so I think that's why, whenever it does happen for him, whenever he does reach the semifinal, the final of the slam, um, I just think it's going to be even even sweeter for him than sometimes, like even Bianca, those really quick, fast years of, of great success. For him, even though he's only 22, it's like I'm talking about him as if he's like 30 and been at this forever. <laughs> it's just been something he's really been waiting for and, and pushing towards. And he's, su- he's such a disciplined player in person that I just think w- once he breaks through and gets there, it'll just be a huge confidence booster for, for trying to keep and stay at that level. You know, it's interesting, Caroline, because Izzy and I were talking earlier in the show, as much as there's been some some huge highs for this generation of new Canadian tennis stars, obviously with Bianca Andreescu winning the U.S. Open, Layla Annie Fernandez getting there uh, to the final last year, there's also been, you know, there's been some downs and some kind of false starts and times where we thought somebody would be on the rise and it hasn't happened that way. But you also take a step back, and I mean, we're talking about four Canadians who won in the first round yesterday, three of whom are still very, very young with a ton of upside. And as much as, you know, sometimes maybe we wish it had happened a little bit uh, faster for Felix or it's been more of a straighter path with injuries for Bianca Andreescu, it's still pretty remarkable to see how the Canadian game has grown and gotten to this point. Oh, totally. Like, I was even saying that Alex and I were talking about that, or the camera guy yesterday. It's like in past years, like if we're even talking five years ago, having four Canadians into the second round, possibly five of the U.S. Open, would have been unheard of. And now it's just kind of like, oh yeah, oh yeah, and by the way, Layla won, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's so <laughs> we're so nonchalant about it. And in tennis too, like if you look across the board on the ATP and WTA. There hasn't been in recent years that consistency where it's not like the big three um, are winning every tournament. I'm being sure Djokovic and Nadal are still adding to their collection of grand slams. But week after week, there's everyone is trying, as I said, to find that consistency. So the Canadians are right there. If, I think it's more if you're a casual tennis fan, it's easy to think like, okay, well, why aren't we winning like a slam a year? A couple, <laughs> you know, it's like. No, we got, like, Bianca won one in 2019. Layla was in the final last year. Like, they're they're getting so close, and they're right there. They're at the top of the pack, even in terms of the odds makers. So it's really a fun time to be a Canadian tennis fan. And we always say it's the golden age, and then every year it just, the golden age gets better. So it's it's great how young they are because there's so much there's so much time and runway for them. And, and just to bring it full circle, I mean, we're talking as you said, just to win one slam is a phenomenal accomplishment. It does really put in, uh, Serena Williams' career into perspective when we're <laughs> oh talking about, about Bianca know. and Layla, right? I even actually was thinking last night, I. Bianca's win over Serena in 2019, I think even after last night, I realized how incredible it was because, again, that was Serena going for record 24th at home in New York. And the crowd, like that crowd is insane. It's 20,000 people. It's just the biggest court in the world for tennis. And they were all cheering three years ago for Serena. And here's this Canadian teenager who pushed her way through. So 
even just it, it's one thing to be like, wow, you won the U.S. Open. That's incredible. But then when you actually think about the crowd and the pressure and everything else that's going on, it's just it's wild even three years later to look back and think of that win. Caroline, we always really appreciate the time. Enjoy the rest of the tournament. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Anytime. That is. Thanks, Caroline. Caroline Cameron of Sportsnet, who uh, you see regularly on our NHL broadcasts on the network and also does a great job covering tennis for us as well in Flushing Meadows this week to uh, take in the spectacle and the scene around Serena Williams and keep tabs on the Canadians as well. And yeah, it sounded like the television broadcast was giving the right impression that it was nuts Mm -hmm. (laughs) based on her reports there last night uh, at Serena's match. Have you, you've never been to a Grand Slam? I've never been, no. Would you have a preference of any of the four? Probably U.S. Open. Okay. Yeah. I mean, just first of all, it's the, it's the most feasible, yeah. but I also I think... I assume Australians for it, and I <laughs> yes. would assume it is for most people. Yes. it. Pro- I assume most people probably are going between Wimbledon and, and the U.S. The Open. US Open. Yeah, for me, I think the atmosphere and the crowd at the U.S. Open, as as Caroline was saying there, it's unique, right? It's yeah. just the, the, the level of energy and excitement that's there. That's the one I would choose, right? And not to scoff at Wimbledon, if somebody wants to give Royal me tickets. Royal Box is somebody, invite for Jamie Dodd. If somebody wants to give me a tickets to Wimbledon. Strawberries and cream. I'll take it. I'll take it. That would be fun, too. But, yeah, if we're if we're just going bucket list or top of the list, yeah, it's uh, it's the U.S. Open, I think. I've seen Arthur Ashe because I've seen Mets games because it's, it's right, right across yeah. the parking lot from, from City Field. And... I bet I'll do it one day. I'll I'll, I'll get to the Go US for it. Open. I believe that would be fun. I believe in you. Thank you. It would be fun. <laughs> You're right. It's a hot take. That would be fun. Hey, we had to cool the takes after we our did. Quinn Hughes, <laughs> OEL, Tyler we Myers did. discussion. We did. That one got pretty heated and they're still coming in. But I did I teased this this text about JT Miller from Dan and Poco. And I wanted to read it quickly here because again, we've gone this long without talking about JT Miller, is he? How how are we doing it? Uh, and Dan and Poco says, Hey guys, I'm wondering what to expect if JT Miller does end up moving. I think I speak for most fans in saying we hoped he would be traded for long-term gain. But now that he's still here with the season approaching, I'm getting excited for big things from the team. What are we left with if he's suddenly traded for futures just before the season or at the deadline? I think it's a good point from Dan. The logic of trading him at the draft is, well, now you have the whole offseason to adjust your roster accordingly. Mm -hmm. You've opened up some cap space, right? You, You can kind of address the holes that are on your roster. I mean, I know the Canucks have kicked the tires on a player like Evan Rodriguez, right? right. We've heard reports of that. If JT Miller was already gone, that becomes a much more likely possibility, right? You know, to answer Dan's question, the one thing is now, if you do trade JT Miller, and it could still absolutely be the correct decision to do that, but all of a sudden, the greatest strength of your team outside the crease, which is your depth down the middle, becomes ordinary rather than excellent, right? Because You've got a huge hole at third line center if if you make that move Correct. without a corresponding move. That's not to say they shouldn't make the deal, but it's just something that you kind of need to consider because what do we know every year about this team? The expectation is to compete for the playoffs. And if they are not able to fill that third line center hole that would get opened up in a JT Miller trade, it's going to be really difficult for them to do that. And I'm not sure what their options are at this point. If, the, if, if a JT Miller trade suddenly materialized... Tomorrow, right, or, or next week, yeah, Evan Rodriguez is still out there, but it's going to be trickier to fill that spot on your roster than it would have been if you'd made the move of the draft. For sure. I, I keep saying this in regard to the, the whole conversation about JT Miller. 
the reason that it's talked about a lot and the reason that it's put at the top of the, the list of, I think, fan interest and in, in the Canucks' own priority list is that this is going to be the first defining move for yeah. this regime. You know, we had minor conversations about Brock Besser and the qualifying offer and what might they do with the draft, that kind of stuff. But this is a long-term decision. You know, can they sign him or will they move to trade? And people have been a little bit surprised around the league that it's mm-hmm. gotten to this point without a resolution one way or the other. And they've been pretty consistent in saying, hey, we're comfortable going to the deadline. That is another example of something that I think is much easier to say than do. And they get there to, to the texter's point of like, hey, like, you know, this is a good player. I want to keep him. If they're if I'm excited about this season and if the the high end of what this team can be materializes over the first half of the season to get to the deadline and JT Miller's not gonna sign, are you really gonna pull the trigger and make a trade there? That's yeah. that's difficult to predict. So I, I, I get the consternation from fans at this point of, of at least wanting to know what direction this is going. In some ways, I almost think you could make the case it would be easier to trade JT Miller ahead of the deadline than, you know, right before training camp. Because if you do it right before training camp, there's almost the sense that you're torpedoing the team before they even have a chance, right? Whereas at least if it's at the deadline, a lot of the season has already been played. You've banked a certain number of points and you kind of think, all right, we can find a way to get through for the final, you know, couple months of the year. Now, look, I, I know realistically it's probably not going to play out like that, or or at least the, the calculus would be very different than how I just laid it out. But I, I do understand Dan and Poco's point that, okay, yeah, maybe I wanted JT Miller to be traded earlier in the offseason, but now all of a sudden with training camp just around the corner, you look at the forward group, and it stacks up really well for the Canucks. That could be a very, very good forward group. And JT Miller is obviously a huge part of that. And all of a sudden, if you take him out of the equation, the complexion of the team is completely different. And I think it's fair. It's very fair for fans to kind of talk themselves into this version of the team. You know, or you know what I mean? To have that excitement. Hey, okay, this team could be pretty fun to watch. They've got the depth down the middle. You know, Kuzmenko's come over. They added Mikheyev. They've bolstered the their forward group in general. No I questions get, about goaltending. No questions Demko. about goaltending. I get wanting to see that all in action, right? And you just hope that management, I think this is the case, that they're able to take the long-term view, right? That they're not kind of seduced by, ooh, okay, we want to see this team in action now, that if the right deal comes along, they're still willing to pull the trigger and make the trade. We haven't heard anything from no, them. And, that, I, that and I think that's the, that. fair, that's the fair position to take because mm-hmm. that's what they've expressed for the most yes. part, right? But it, again, it, easier easier said than done. Uh, Minor Matt Averageman says, what if a dark horse like Doug McCallum puts together a package to lure JT Miller to Surrey to play in a 60,000 seat LeBron. stadium? Yeah, he's got LeBron on board. He's got Kendrick Lamar on board. <laughs> now just bring JT Miller in to be the face of the franchise. Uh, I, I am very much enjoying Doug McCallum becoming a running bit on uh, it's a great <laughs> meme. in the 650-650 Dunbar Lover text line. Keep your Doug McCallum in 60,000 seat stadium thoughts coming in because they make me laugh. But we do have to take a quick break here. Uh, by the way, before we take a quick break, back to school deals on the latest phones, plans, and much more are now on at Fido. Visit them in-store 
or at Fido.ca. On the other side, June Lee, ESPN staff writer, is going to join us to talk about the really interesting story involving minor league baseball players and their attempt to form a union, get representation uh, from the Major League Baseball Players Association. We'll get into that, a little bit on the field stuff with June as well. It's coming up next. It's Halford and Bruff with Jamie Dodd and Israel Fair, Sportsnet 650. Time now for Sportsnet 650 traffic from the City News 1130 Air Patrol. If we're going through... Maybe that's just like a style of big band music that I'm not aware of. That's the, the remix edition. <laughs> they want to keep you in suspense with the pause. Yeah, well, it worked. Yeah, I know. It's like, hey, where, where, where are they going with this one? Nothing like some dead air at 7:30 to <laughs> jolt you out of your <laughs> out of your sleepiness. That was exciting. Uh, it is Halford and Broth here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd at Israel Fair filling in for the guys. They'll be back next week post Labor Day. The official automotive sponsor. Of Halford and Bruff is the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Mentioned it just before the break. Really interesting story from the world of baseball this week. Broke late Sunday night. Uh, we saw it develop a little bit yesterday as well. That uh, the Major League Baseball Players Association, MLBPA, involved in efforts to unionize the minor leagues and be able to represent minor league players and collectively bargain with Major League Baseball on behalf of those players. And very pleased right now to be joined by June Lee from ESPN, who has been covering this story. You can follow him uh, on Twitter, at June Lee, if you want more and to keep up to date on the story. Uh, June, thanks very much for doing this. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, we're really pleased. It's a really fascinating story. Uh, so first of all, I mean, for, for our listeners and for those who haven't maybe been locked in step by step, just kind of describe what exactly happened uh, that was the big news this week on this story. Yeah, so the MLBPA decided to officially move forward in helping unionize the minor leagues. And what that means is that the minor leaguers are now in a position where they can uh, vote to have the MLBPA as their collective bargaining representative. They need 30% of players to sign off on moving forward with an election. And if a majority of players decide to vote positively for a union, the MLBPA will then uh have two unions under their umbrella, which is the major league players and the minor league players. The major league uh, baseball players union is known uh, throughout sports and maybe even throughout the world as being incredibly strong. Uh, I I think that that's pretty well known uh, by people who may not even follow sports. This, can you explain to the audience what makes this significant that the minor league players could potentially have the same sort of representation that major league players have had for a long time and, and why that is significant? Yeah, so the minor league players have have never had a collective bargaining agreement in the way that you know, baseball players, football players, basketball players at the highest level all do. And so as a result, minor league players are forced into signing the uniform player contract, which basically puts them under the team control for seven years. That means signing for, uh, for a lot of people below poverty wages uh, you know, 50, uh, around 50% of players sign for a, a signing bonus of over $100,000, uh, but the other 50% don't, and that $100,000 or more is supposed to uh, last over the course of the, the time it takes for you to get to the major leagues. could be seven years. Uh, and as a result, you know, there are a lot of players are dealing with really tough living situations. 
Uh, and on top of all of that, they, they also sign away their, their rights to their name, image, and likeness. And so if you look at a video game like MLB The Show, minor leaguers are in that game, but they don't see a dime from any of that uh, because they have signed away their name, image, and likeness rights uh, to the Major League Baseball clubs. And uh, it kind of means that minor leaguers don't have or they have less rights in terms of their name, image, and likeness than uh, even college sports players do in the United States now. And so this is the minor leaguers starting to take things back into their own hands and uh, trying to find themselves in a position to empower them to kind of get better pay, get better living conditions, and, and be able to make money that is more emblematic of the value that they present as a whole to Major League Baseball. What are the next steps in this process, and what's the, what's the timeline for kind of where this process is going to go? Sure. So the next step is figuring out whether we're moving forward with an election and whether the minor league players are going to be in a position to officially ratify the union. At that point, if 50% or more of minor leaguers do decide to move forward with the union, it'll have to be reviewed and approved by the National Labor Review Board. And at that point, Major League Baseball will have to officially recognize the union. Now, there's a scenario, which I think is unlikely just given the way that Rob Manfred has been very antagonistic towards minor leaguers, where if enough players have a union authorization card, you know, more than 30%, and, and they feel that as if they can voluntarily recognize the union, they could do that. But I don't anticipate that happening given the way that Rob Manfred has threatened to further consolidate the minor leagues uh, in the Senate antitrust exemption case, where there's been talks about the Senate pulling back on baseball's legal monopoly in the United States and how that would affect the minor leagues. You know, Rob Amber has threatened uh, that further consolidating the minor leagues could be possible if the antitrust is revoked or, you know, potentially if minor leaguers unionize and, and are able to negotiate better rights. Uh, and so there's a lot of kind of factors at play here, and there's not necessarily a firm timeline on all, all of this, uh, but the votes should be coming in the next couple of weeks. What's your sense, June, of how likely that vote is to be in favor of of unionization? Because obviously there's been a lot of momentum in a quick time behind this. But at the same time, I know, you know, a unionization drive can be can be tricky in any circumstance, right? You're never entirely sure of how it's how it's going to go. Is this a slam dunk that the minor league players will vote to to continue this process? Or is there some uncertainty? So this is the biggest hurdle in all of this. There's 5,000 over 5,000 minor leaguers across the country, across levels. You know, there's a lot of geographic distance between all these people. The technology has, I think, helped organize all of this over Zoom, over group chats. Um, but that is the biggest challenge facing the minor league union right now. When I talk to minor leaguers and I talk to player agents, there's a lot of optimism. There's a lot of optimism that the culture around the sport has changed dramatically over the course of the last, calendar year especially, and that there is the sense that minor leaguers believe that they can speak up without facing enormous retribution, which is basically what has prevented this in the past. And I think Major League Baseball giving minor leaguers guaranteed housing over the course of the last year has further emboldened them into believing that their voice United has a lot of power and strength and that they can potentially take on Major League Baseball. But 
oh, you know, when push comes to shove, when there's a voting card in front of them, we'll see how the Miami Guerrero's actually end up voting. You mentioned Rob Manfred and his uh, antagonistic comments about this possibility. Uh, minor League Baseball obviously covers, uh, as you mentioned, a whole lot of players, a whole lot of teams across the continent. It's a feeder system to Major League Baseball, but it does seem that the relationship over the course of years is one that is not, they're not necessarily on the same level. What is the best way to describe the way that Major League Baseball and the commissioner's office views the entire minor league operation? I think that on the whole, that Major League Baseball views the minor leagues as a place for a handful of the game's top prospects to develop and become major leaguers. Because once you get to the minor leagues, the odds of getting to the major leagues is still really, really thin. And for a lot of these teams, you know, the value proposition of the minor leagues is that it gives a place for the prospects that they really believe in, the prospects that they really think can turn into the next Julio Rodriguez, Juan Soto, Matt Scherzer, Jacob deGrom to develop into those players. You know, everyone else, in the eyes of a, a lot of people in management across baseball, believe that every, everyone else is kind of a filler. And as a result, these players feel like they're treated like fillers, like they're just another body in that. You know, I was talking to a major league player the other day about the, the prospect of unionization and the further consolidation of the minor leagues. And he basically said that, you know, guys like Jacob DeGrom, who – were drafted late in draft, Paul Goldschmidt, Albert Pujols, those guys might fall by the wayside, but for a lot of these major league owners, that trade-off of the rising cost of the minor leagues might be worth it for them. In my experience covering baseball, and I've been around the minor leagues and the big leagues, it seems like for a lot of players that that view of the minor leagues is shared, and at, at least they're the ones that have gone through it. But once they reach the big leagues, it, it feels like, at least to the, the highly established players, that they, they, they got through that part of their life and the minor leagues and the big leagues, there is this huge gap. And maybe this is changing. It seemed like when it looked like the season was headed toward a lockout that some of the high-paid uh, players, some of the, the big names in the sport, were, were spending a little bit more time talking about the minor league baseball conditions. Do you think that this generation of major league players and, and the guys at, at the top of the food chain are viewing their role in this a little differently than maybe they did in the past? Yes. I mean, I've talked to several major leaguers, um, some of them in union leadership, who talked about how the culture around this has changed dramatically, where there used to be this idea and the sentiment that we went through this, so they have to go through it. But I think that things have changed recently, especially with the younger guys coming up earlier and earlier, guys coming up to the major leagues in their 21, 22, 23-age seasons and becoming massive contributors immediately at the major league level where guys are starting to believe the minor leagues don't have to be like this and they deserve to be treated better. And so I think that that cultural shift happening at the major league level tied together with the larger cultural shift happening in the minor leagues where guys are becoming less afraid to speak up about their living conditions, especially since the start of the COVID pandemic in 2020. I think those two things tied together have led to this perfect cultural storm for 
this unionization effort to happen because this is a conversation that's happened in the MLBPA, you know, dating back decades. And the reason it hasn't happened is because these two things on the major league side and on the minor league side, from a cultural standpoint, haven't happened. And the PA right now and, you know, formerly advocates for minor leaguers, Harry Marino and Tony Clark, they believe that the temperature is right for this moment to move forward with minor league unionization. Uh, we're in conversation with June Lee of ESPN talking about the, the minor league baseball unionization effort, but I did want to talk just some on the field, big league stuff with you, June as well, because I know you're, you're locked in covering MLB. And I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a Jays fan. We were talking a little Jays earlier in the show. It's been such a strange year up and down for them. They've been in a playoff spot basically the whole season, but it's also felt extremely underwhelming at times. What's your take on the season the Jays have had so far? And I mean, do you still think they have the potential to potentially do some damage uh, in October? Yeah, I mean, I was actually had a conversation with Bo Bichette when he was uh, in New York with the, uh, with the Jays a couple weeks back, and they were kind of talking about how the team is in a similar position to where they were last year, where they were kind of struggling in, in August, and they got hot at the right time. I mean, if the Jays were in the same spot this year, you know, there's more playoff spots, they would have made the playoffs, and so... I think that the team is in a position where this is the first time they've had kind of this larger set of expectations and pressure on them. And there has been ups and downs through that uh, and, and dealing with the expectations and the internal expectations being just as high as the external expectations, but those external expectations still playing a factor in how these guys are going about things day to day. But this is still a young clubhouse. I think that they are learning how to manage those external expectations growing on top of the internal expectations also being way higher going into the year. I think the Jays slide would have probably gotten a little bit more attention if the Yankees hadn't gotten in the slump around the same time. Where's your concern with, with where the Yankees are at at this point? Uh, I'm feeling much better about where the Yankees are at now than I was uh, a couple of weeks ago. I think that there was a lot of injuries happening all at once. Uh, with the bullpen, you know, Clay Holmes went down, John Carlos Stanton went down, uh, Frankie Montas has been up and down since you know, he got traded. But I, I, I do think that the Yankees have the talent and they have the consistency in that lineup to be a threat in October. And they, I do think that they still have the depth in that pitching rotation with Luis Severino coming back. There is a level of embarrassment that you have to feel as a Yankees fan struggling against the A's in the way that they did. Uh, But I do think that there is a level of um, relative, you know, confidence in the talent on this roster. And as long as Aaron judge and John Carlos Stanton are continuing uh, to be the centerpiece of that lineup, this team is going to be a threat in October. And it's not about, whether you struggle in August, it's about whether you get hot in October. And I, I still think, despite all of the recent struggles, that this team has a chance to do that. And I think they're almost the victim of their own success in that they were so good at the beginning of the year. Um, and there was a level of recalibration of expectations. And people were thinking that this could be a, a historically great team. Um, they're still 78 and 51. They're still first in, <laughs> in the air right now, which I think is easy to forget. Uh, and, and they did recently just win five games against Toronto, the Mets, uh, and the A's. Uh, and so I still believe in the Yankees and the talent on this roster. Um, 
but I do think that there needs to be a, a recalibration of the expectations we had that for them because they went into the All Star break with such enormous lead in the division. You know, you said the the Yankees got off to that historically good start. One team that's been pretty historically good all year long is the LA Dodgers, and the record is impressive. The up over a seven hundred winning percentage. The run differential is just absolutely insane. I've never really seen anything like it. Are are we sleeping maybe a little bit on just how good the Dodgers have been uh, this year? <laughs> It's almost like the LeBron James syndrome yeah. where it's like they're so good consistently that it's almost boring to talk about them. Like being consistently good isn't, uh, isn't interesting uh, to talk about. And so I think people don't, uh, you know, don't talk about the Dodgers. Mookie Betts is having his, one of the best power-hitting seasons of his career. If not, he's on pace to, to break his, his career high in homers this year. Um, I do think that one of – the area of the weakness for the Dodgers right now is that pitching staff because Walker Buehler is out for the year. Uh, Clayton Kershaw has been on the DL multiple times this year. Uh, there's you know, c- continually injuries on that pitching staff right now. Tony Gonsolin going on the aisle yesterday with a right forearm strain. Uh, there are spots of weakness here, and this is a, a younger rotation that is depending a lot on guys like Tyler Anderson and Julio Urias. Um, so that is something to, to look out for. Uh, Dustin May is a guy that they're relying a lot on. He's coming back from from surgery and injuries as well. So this is a really, really good team. I mean, it's undeniable. The depth is there. Uh, But, again, we've seen great regular season teams before fall short in October. Hey, June, we really appreciate the time, especially walking us through the the complicated but very interesting minor league uh, story. So thank you very much for that, and hopefully we can chat again soon. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, June. That is June Lee, ESPN staff writer covering Major League Baseball and got into some on-the-field stuff, but you know, really the reason we wanted to have him on was his reporting on the, the minor league unionization story. And this text came in uh, towards the end of the interview there, unsigned. I don't understand this because I'm not a huge baseball fan. How different are the minors for baseball than, say, the AHL? Appreciate the help. Well, I think the big difference is there's just so much there's so I mean, there's the AHL and the ECHL. That's it. That's it. There's so many more minor league teams and yes. so many more players in an organization. Even after, because you still have triple A, double A, you know, high A, low A, yep. and then some short season stuff going on as yep. well, right? So yeah, Arizona League. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's Dominican Summer League, yep. right? The complex leagues they call them. So there's a lot more volume of players involved, and I think that kind of. And maybe it's also just the history of it, right? But that has served to drive the compensation way uh-huh. down. You know, you heard June Lee refer to it. There are players it. in the AHL who make six figures. Oh, for sure. And, and that's not on an NHL deal. That's that's what they're paid in the AHL, right? Nobody that in the is AHL not no. in minor league. Nobody Unless in the, the AHL player, is like making Rizmi Castillo. Yeah, yeah signs yeah. a massive contract with the Red Sox, stinks, and gets sent down. Right, and plays out that big league contract because those big league contracts are guaranteed in the minor leagues. There is no minor leaguer who has never made the big leagues that's making no anything significant. There's nobody in the AHL who's making you know poverty wages as. As uh, as June Lee described, some of the minor leaguers in baseball making, which is true, right? I mean, you hear stories about guys living out of their car, right? And guys who are, you know, doing Uber Eats on the side just to be able to to afford food for that week, right? Like, that's some of the conditions that they're living in. That's not happening in the AHL. Now, you go down to the ECHL, and maybe you're getting a little bit closer to that, but that's also... You know, ECHL teams often, not all of them are necessarily affiliated with a, an NHL team. There's a little bit more separation there, Right. The the it's a really good comparison to look at the AHL mm-hmm. because yeah, as 
as much as it is different because there are so many fewer minor league teams in hockey, it also kind of shows you, yeah, you can support guys on decent wages at a minor league level, right? Yes. Like th- that money can exist. It's not an impossible scenario that they're asking for. Major League Baseball has always viewed it as there's just too many players and that this, this is just a big pool. And as June said, there's only going to be maybe one player per minor league team in a given year that's going to end up making the big leagues, especially in the lower levels. I do think an important part of this conversation is to acknowledge how many minor league players are from Latin American countries where they're not coming from wealthy backgrounds. And so it's not like they can rely on their family's money to get them through. They are coming from a lot of times. This may be a bit of a generalization, but by and large, it's pretty close. They're not coming from much. They're coming to North America with this idea that they're going to make the big leagues. They don't fully understand and recognize the way that Rob Manfred and the commissioner's office and Major League Baseball, maybe some of the top executives look at the minor leagues as maybe a couple of these guys are going to make it. A lot of these, these guys are coming in with the thought that they are going to make the big leagues. They are going to make money when they are really just part of this bigger system that has been built for Nearly 100 years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the other interesting thing is the history of the minor league system. And, you know, I do wonder where, because we've already seen them consolidate the minors, right, and remove a whole bunch of teams. I do wonder where the minor league system is heading, especially if there is a successful unionization effort, right, and they're forced to to compensate the players a little bit more. I understand the perspective from a from a raw dollars and cents uh, point of view of the owners saying, you know what, I don't want to be supporting all of these minor league teams. It's also kind of a shame, though, because that's so many people's access to baseball and access to the sport, right? And I, I do think there's a larger sense where constantly paring down and reducing it and saying, you know what, we're just going to keep these guys on our complex in Florida. Right. And we don't need to play them in actual games. We'll just de- develop them there. Removing them from all of those towns across North America I don't know. I just think you're losing something and potentially maybe, hey, maybe it improves your balance sheet for year one and two, but are you preventing the game from reaching all these other fans, right? that That's my real concern if they do go down that road. Absolutely. And my understanding is that Rob Manfred uh, and, and his operation is geared toward the balance sheet and, yep. and not thinking about... Really? He's not super romantic about baseball? He's not. No. He's not. Um, it's it's just a hunk of metal when you win the World Series. One of his more infamous quotes. Unreal. <laughs> but that's the thing. Um, and that's part of the beauty of baseball. We, we both like baseball. I mean, we last week I was doing a show and we talked a lot of baseball. People were not happy <laughs> uh, because um, some people don't like it. I get it. But you and I both love baseball. And look, we're here in Vancouver. If they were to reduce the minor leagues, I think Vancouver would be one of the teams that would what would stay. Yes, because it is it's it's a model franchise yes. in a lot of ways but for a minor like league that's, team. That was my first access to absolutely to live baseball, baseball, going to the Nat, seeing those players, and this is even I I don't remember the AAA days. I'm I'm remember the short season days, and now they play more games. It's it's still a ton of fun to go to the Nat and and see some of the prospects, but just just see some decent baseball. Um, and that is. That is part of the calculus that I think has to remain because I do think if you were to present Rob Manfred with, hey, um, let's just do everything's at the complex. Everyone's just yeah. playing here, antiseptic, n- no relationship with the fans, et cetera, et cetera. 
he might lean that way, but you just detailed exactly why um, I think it is important. Well, and you even heard, you know, uh, June Lee from ESPN say he's been kind of willing to use chopping down the miners as a bargaining chip with the government, right? Saying, hey, we have to keep our antitrust uh, exemption. If we don't, you could see a lot more minor league teams going away. So obviously he is willing to use that as leverage. And yeah, that doesn't necessarily bode well for the future of minor league baseball. We're going to take a quick break here. Up next, Thomas Drance of The Athletic and also Sportsnet. We'll get into some Canucks conversation with him. Concert West presents Pink Floyd's Roger Waters live in the round September 15th at Rogers Arena. Get your tickets now at rogerswaters.com. It is Halford and Bruff with Jamie Dodd and Israel Fair here on Sportsnet 650.